This is the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm J.D. Layton. I'm Emily Moshek. Only on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. Hello and welcome. I am one of two news directors here at 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. I am J.D. Layton and I'm joined in studio by... Emily Moshek. As well as our very own reporter... Katie Otter. And this is the Rocky Mountain Review, your news talk show. Do you know what day it is today, Emily? Um, I don't know. Other than Thursday, which are always special for the review. I feel like it's like some kind of holiday with pink and gross people in love, but I'm not sure if I'm getting it quite right. (laughs) It's Valentine's Day. Oh, yeah, that's what it's called. Yeah, there there it is. There it is. We've got some stuff on that later, so keep that dial locked all the way to the end of the show. But in the meantime, we have a very special interview celebrating Black History Month from Linda Goldman, the executive producer of The Green Book documentary, which will be airing February 25th on the Smithsonian Channel at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. So we have an insight on that with her. And it also premiered in Denver on February 13th and has been making its way across the country. It's a really special documentary, and it was very exciting to speak with Linda. So we are glad to have you here, Linda. Thank you so much. Uh, sorry. Oh, no worries. And you're the executive producer of The Green Book and the Smithsonian Networks as well, correct? Yes, I am one of the executive producers at Smithsonian Networks, and the Green Book film was one of my projects that I executive produced last year. Yeah. Awesome. Well, it's the perfect film to celebrate Black History Month this month. How do you personally feel the film helps to honor this month? Oh, wow. Um, you know, I I really love this film. Um, and it's, it's uh, one of the things that I love about it is that the more I watch it, the more I learn. There's a lot of dimension to it. Um, and, and there's a lot of um, storytelling um, that uh, the director, Yoruba Richin, I thought did a brilliant job. Um, of taking what could be considered to be an incredibly sprawling topic, right? The Green Book. You know, there were 96,000 listings uh, in the Green Book over about 30 years. Like, how do you make that a, a documentary? Um, and uh, and she did some very special things with it. And um, I think it's a a wonderful introduction to the topic writ, writ large. Um, I think it's a window into a history that um, we haven't necessarily really thought about. I learned a lot working on it, and we've been screening it around the country, and I think a lot of people have learned a lot of things um, and make connections, in some cases, to their own past um, and their own experiences or remembrances when they were children with their parents having the Green Book. So it's also opened up a lot of really... um, fascinating and timely and and sort of like rich conversations so we're we're thrilled to be premiering it this month um and and since the beginning since our inception smithsonian channel has been committed to african-american history because we think that it's essential to the greater understanding of our national story so we do celebrate Brown history month but we actually air these programs all year long, um, but we love having a chance to to really focus our energies and efforts and get out around the country um, and share the programs with people as well. 
Awesome, awesome. And for her for our listeners who might not necessarily be super familiar with the Green Book and and what it is, do you think you could give a quick breakdown of the documentary as well as what the Green Book is? Um, so the Green Book was a travel guide um, that was started by a postal worker in Harlem in 1936. And you know, this is a fact that I'd been. Sort of, you know, we we talked about this for months, and and it just dawned on me recently. It's like, wait a second, this man started a new venture in the middle of the Great Depression, and and what an incredible thing he did. And over the next 30 years, the guide was printed every year, um, and it's something that helped African Americans navigate a segregated America, um, not just in the South. Um, there were issues all over the country, and that's one of the things that the film explores. Um, you know, the guide listed places where people could safely spend the night and access basic services. So it definitely was an answer to a very real problem of racism around the country during the Jim Crow era, not just in the South. At the same time, what's so fascinating about the guide is that it also is a window into these thriving communities and businesses. It listed places of recreation. Um, it really was a travel guide. You know, they talked about sites to see in Manhattan, you know, what to do if you visited Mount Rushmore. But it also listed places specifically for African Americans, like these amazing resorts like Idlewild in Michigan and Murray's Dude Ranch in California and American Beach. Um, in North Carolina. So it enabled African Americans to travel safely, and it also was a tool for them to enjoy the American experience of freedom, to ride in their own car and go on vacation. Um, and that's a, a piece of the story that um, sort of was revealed to us once we started working on the film um, that we thought was really fascinating and very compelling. That really is a fantastic story. It's almost shocking to hear how that wasn't even that long ago when African Americans had to have a book to get around. So it's definitely an eye-opening perspective that you get from the film, for sure. Absolutely. And I think that, look, I think that, you know, we all know that um, there are many issues with traveling today, right? Um, I think that there there are moments in the film that, that resonate, um, and it wasn't that long ago, and I think that in some ways it's a reminder to us um, that there are many things about our national right? This, this, this topic kind of encompasses what you might say sort of the best and the worst of the American story, right? You know, something like the Green Book was necessary. Um, there was racism. There's, there was right supremacy. And at the same time, um, postal worker from Harlem could launch a thriving business in the middle of the Great Depression. And that guide then became um, sort of a way to build network and build community. You know, one of the things we talk about in the film was that there were a lot of women entrepreneurs that had guest houses and beauty parlors and restaurants and provided services. So a lot of businesses started and advertised in the Green Book and were enormously successful. Um, and, you know, that's another piece of the story, too. It's both of those things. It's both 
kind of the 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 challenges of our country's history and also the sort of innovation and determination and ingenuity um, of our country as well and of, of the African-American community, many communities around the country. That's another thing about this film and about this story is that there's not a single monolithic African-American experience. There were many. So um, it's, I've, I've sort of been saying it's kind of a roadmap to a lot of, you know, we're getting getting off the highways of history, right? You kind of learn your history and like this happened and that happened and it's kind of like barreling down the highway. The Green Book kind of provides a map to a lot of really fascinating detours, mm-hmm. a lot of scenic routes. Yeah. Did you have a story or a person you encountered when you were making this documentary that really stuck with you? Oh, my gosh. It's like trying to pick a favorite child. <laughs> um, you know, uh, one thing that we haven't talked about, and then, and I also want to be really clear. So I was the executive producer for the channel. The filmmaker, uh, the film was directed by Yoruba Richin. She did an incredible job. Um, and, um, and she also was working with a production team, um, believe it or not, from the, from the U.K., from England. So uh, we had a very sort of international perspective on this as well. Um, one of the stories we haven't alluded to, but that, that really is kind of one of these sort of fascinating kind of dimensions, right, is the, the, there are the, the role that, and I, I want to be careful because you can't really talk about causality, um, but there, there's a interesting, some interesting correlations. Um, so you've got these, these businesses that are, um, you know, serving the consumers and advertising the Green Book and, and businesses booming. Um, and then the civil rights movement starts. Um, and there are that are in interesting ways affiliated with pieces of the civil rights story. Um, and one of the things that really isn't talked about much but that we talk about in the film um, is the story of the A.G. Gaston Motel in Birmingham, Alabama. And A.G. Gaston was a very successful African-American businessman, um, and he wanted to build a, a beautiful, he set out to build what his, his niece in the film sort of referred to as the finest um, black hotel in America at the time. You know, he really made a very high-end, beautiful motel. Uh, for places to stay in Birmingham, or for people to stay in Birmingham, and um, and he was a very successful businessman, but he was he was very conservative. So he operated within the social sort of structure of the time, um, and and succeeded within that. So as the civil rights movement starts to pick up steam, um, as um, and you've got Bull Connor was the police chief in Birmingham. And so um, the the civil rights leaders at that time, you know, in that town said, you know what, this is not fair. Um, we can shop at the Woolworths, but we're not allowed to use the facilities. They'll take our money, but we can't use the bathroom. We can't use the escalator. We can't um, eat in the, in the, at the lunch counter there. And so they started something called Project C, Project Confrontation. And this is where um, 
Reverend Martin Luther King came to Birmingham and Reverend Abernathy. And we know some of these pieces of history, right? You know, many of us may be familiar with the letter from a Birmingham jail, this very famous letter that Martin Luther King wrote. So he came to Birmingham to organize this campaign for basic human rights for the African-American citizens of Birmingham. He stayed in the A.G. Gaston Motel. Room 30 was the room that was kind of their war room. And, and he and A.G. Gaston were, um, were good friends. But they were having some debate about whether or not they should be so confrontational, whether they should try to sort of, um, you know, work the system more. And I don't want to give the entire story away, but we realized, you know, A.G. Gaston basically was helping, he was allowing people to stay in the motel for free, right? So there's a, there's a story of African-American entrepreneurship, and there's a story of, um, you know, African-Americans who um, had made, um, made money um, through various businesses, some of which were affiliated with the Green Book. And, and some of their profits from those businesses were then, in one way or another, helped to support various aspects of the civil rights movement. It's fascinating. That's a very long answer. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if you want a shorter version of that. But, no, um, we love it. No, that no, is fantastic. Good answer. Uh, we'll we'll yeah, ask you. It's, it's really cool. Yeah, it really is. Another thing I was wondering is, can you explain to me a little bit about how – you felt with the responsibility of representing not only all of this black history, but the black community in general with the film as someone who's not African-American? That's an excellent question. And it's something that we think a lot, uh, think about a lot at Smithsonian Channel. So we're, we're coming at it from a couple of ways, very broad strokes. Um, we're very conscious of um, doing everything we can to build and nurture a diverse staff at the network um, from all corners of the globe and as many perspectives as possible. Um, and then specifically in dealing with African-American content, we um, are actively seek to work with African-American producers and directors um, we also um, will seek out, um, you know, we work closely with the Smithsonian Institution on many of our projects. And so, and we have a review process. Um, we, at the network, we really pride ourselves on, um, we always strive to be accurate and balanced in every program that we put out. Um, and part of that involves a review process with the Smithsonian Institution. So we will call scholars at the institution that we know and say, hey, will you take a look at this, or can you give us our, your perspective on that? And quite honestly, they've helped um, educate us over the years um, in, a lot of, in a lot of ways. Um, and then it's just always um, trying, you know, just taking, taking a minute and thinking, okay, um, what are we seeing? What's the other person seeing? Um, and then, you know, how, how is this going to play? Now, the flip side of that that I think is equally important is, is producing um, programs or, or remembering that, our, that the members of our audience 
are not African-American, right? We want to share this history with everyone in the country. And so that then becomes um, sometimes, you know, well, for example, I'll give you an example on this one. You know, when we were talking, there's a conversation about um, resorts and beaches and swimming pools. And in the first cut, it was sort of like this happened and that happened. And then I sort of raised my hand and said, wait a second, we need to talk about segregated beaches and pools because there are people um, this was some. This was something that was new to me a few years ago, and I think that there are people in our audience for, who would not really be aware of something like that. And so, part of it too is like, is like making sure that we're putting in information that that might be useful, um, or might be of interest to a wide audience that they might not have known before. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. The ultimate goal is, yeah, the ultimate goal is to um, be as accurate as possible, as respectful as possible, and we hope to be um, building empathy through understanding is, is one of my goals on the projects that I work on. Well, that's an excellent message, and it sounds like this is going to be a really, really great film, especially honoring Black History Month. So we really appreciate you taking the time to come and talk to us, and the film will air on February 25th on the Smithsonian Channel, correct? That is correct. That's the night it premieres. It airs many more times throughout the month. Um, so if you are interested in, you know, you don't, you miss the premiere, there's other opportunities, and you can also check it out on our website to find out exact dates and airtimes and ways to view it. That sounds fantastic. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you all. And welcome back to the Rocky Mountain Review, your news talk show. I am J.D. Layton, one of two news directors here at 90.5 KCSU. I'm joined in studio by the co-hostess with the mostest. Emily Moschak. As well as our very own reporters. Ren Wadsworth. And Katie Otter. And Ren, I believe you've got us a local newscast. I do indeed. I'm Ren Wadsworth, and this is your local news. The Thornton Pipeline and decisions regarding it have been in the news recently. Pamela Johnson of the Reporter Herald speaks about residents of Thornton's feelings about the pipeline and the unexpected decision about it. The original plan for the pipeline was to build it following Douglas Road, but as people who live on or near this road began to speak up, the plan for the pipeline began to change. The new the new proposal, brought forward on December 17th, suggested to build the pipeline along Country Road 56, but this would mean the pipeline was going through more private property and the public was still not pleased. A six-day meeting was held in the first floor hearing room at Larimer County Courthouse offices on Monday, February 11th. Many concerned residents of Thornton attended the meeting to voice their opinions on the pipeline proposal. The main concerns were that this pipeline would affect their safety, property value, and quality of life. 70 residents signed up to speak, with 50 being able to speak at the hearing on Monday, and all 50 of those residents pleaded with the commissioner to deny the pipeline proposal due to its destructive nature on Larimer County. The route goes through 23 residents' property, cutting through their yards and fields and truly affecting their properties. Speakers pushed for the pipeline proposal to be denied and and insisted for the commissioner to consider the Poudre River opinion, which would leave the water in the river until it passed through Fort Collins. Commissioner Tom Donnelly would ultimately decide whether to pass the pipeline proposal this upcoming Monday. 
Good news for you seniors listening because Fort Collins and Colorado Springs both ranked among the nation's top 10 cities in job growth last year, reports Natalia Navarro from the Colorado Public Radio. According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, Colorado Springs was ranked fourth with a 5.5% growth rate, while Fort Collins barely squeezed into a top 10 placement at ninth with 4.5 placement growth. Additionally, Colorado Springs' job market grew by 16,100 jobs, while the city of Fort Collins' job market grew by 7,300 non-farm jobs. While 10th place may be discouraging to some who think Ram Country should be always placed in first place, a friendly reminder that Boulder was ranked 47th with a 3% gain. Wherever you decide to go in Colorado, jobs are up and coming. This Friday, Governor Jared Polis will be traveling here at CSU to speak directly to the Associated Students of Colorado State University Senate Chamber. He will, talk, he will be talking about higher education as well as answering questions senators might have as well as taking pictures. Unfortunately, this is a private event for members of ASCSU only. However, I will be in attendance and will keep you updated on the governor's arrival next week. That's all I have for you today. I'm Ren Wadsworth. Happy Valentine's Day, Rams. Thank you, Ren. I'm excited to hear about the Jared Polis piece. Next I know. Sure. I'm, uh, I'm glad we've got a, uh, someone on the inside. I know. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, but don't leave because we have a special interview with Rachel Walker about her kombucha business here in Fort Collins. And welcome back to the Rocky Mountain Review. I am one of two news directors here at 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. I am J.D. Layton. I'm joined in studio by co-host with the mostest Emily Moschak as well as our reporter Ren Wadsworth and as well as a very oh Katie's here too I'm here too <laughs> she's just hiding in the corner yeah, because we're... we have a very special guest Rachel Walker from Life's a Booch a kombucha business here in Fort Collins what a great name just to start off with <laughs> thank you that's a perfect name <laughs> thank you was that your idea or it did was else... my idea yes oh it my was gosh. I love it thank that's you. so awesome so for our listeners who maybe might not know, what exactly is kombucha? Kombucha, that's a good question, is a fermented tea. So it's a probiotic. So it's really, really good for your gut, for a healthy digestive system, helps regulate the pH in your stomach, the acids in your stomach. It's just an all-around good-for-you wellness drink. Awesome. I had kombucha today, actually. I had like a orange carrot ginger blend. Look oh, at was you. it Health Aid Kombucha? Yeah, I yes, ha- it was. I'm a representative. I'm a sales rep for them also oh, with my full-time really? job. Yes, I love oh, that flavor. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Yeah, that was a good one. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoyed it. <laughs> so what exactly is the process for brewing kombucha? Oh, it's about a 21 to 25-day process, depending on how long you ferment it for. Um, but I am specifically small craft specific, so I ferment in two-gallon glass jars. So it really helps keep the flavor profile and the authenticity of the kombucha. But essentially, you need a SCOBY, which is a symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast. It looks like a booger, pretty much. <laughs> and you need some starter tea, which is just some basic kombucha and some sugar. Um, and you let that sit, and the SCOBY builds, and it eats up all the sugars and the bacteria and the yeast and turns it into all the good stuff that you like. Mm-hmm. And then you add some flavorings and bottle, bottle it up, and bada-bing, bada-boom. Awesome. <laughs> Does it make a difference, like, how long you're fermenting it in a flavor? Yes. Yeah, the longer you ferment it for, the more sour it is. Oh, okay. Um, yes. And, like, for instance, once I add blueberries to my blueberry chai, if I only let it sit for one day compared to I usually let it sit for four or five days, it wouldn't be as flavorful. Oh. Okay, yeah, gotcha. Now, is usually non-alcoholic, but it is a fermented drink. Is Does it ever cross in that threshold where it is alcoholic or... 
Mine does not. Um, I hope to one day actually have an alcoholic kombucha company, just that's like in my two-year plan. But I do have to very strictly regulate the alcohol. I have to test it with every a bunch of tools um, and everything. So it is below 0.05% every single bottle. I have to test for that pretty. Health department's pretty honest for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you ever see it becoming a competitor with beer in the future, especially in a town like Fort Collins? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, along with owning an alcoholic kombucha company, I would really also like to own an alcoholic kombucha brewery in town. I think that would be really cool, something that the town doesn't offer yet, something that CSU and Fort Collins just really, really needs because everyone loves kombucha and everyone loves beer. So I definitely see it as an up-and-coming competitor to beer. Watch out. Watch out. Breweries. Breweries. Watch out. Kombucha is coming yeah, for right? you. I know. Well, I know a few breweries that will serve both. Um, at least there's one that in Highlands Ranch where I live that does. Okay, yeah, and, and we actually a have kombucha a kombucha drink. brewery in Fort Collins <laughs> mm-hmm, as well. I know. I, I've yet to go, but I've I've heard of it. Yeah, um, it's up and coming. So, how did you get into making kombucha? Like, how has this become your your profession? Yeah, so I actually used to work at Whole Foods, and about four years ago, I started brewing. A friend at Whole Foods gave me a scoby. Um, like I said, that's sort of like the booger, the mother, essentially, of the fermented tea. And I started brewing in my basement apartment, and all my friends really, really liked it. And so as soon as I no longer worked at Whole Foods, I was able to sort of have a schedule where I was able to be off by three or four every day with my new job to devote time to the kombucha company. I'm actually quitting my full-time job in a month to go full-time kombucha for the summer, um, which I'm very, very excited for. So it's just kind of been the perfect stepping stones, working at Whole Foods, being in the natural foods business. Um, but yeah. That's awesome. Well, yeah. congratulations about that. Thank you. I'm super, it's scary, but it's super exciting at the same time. <laughs> It'll be great. Do you have favorite flavors or what are the best flavors in your opinion? Oh, okay. So I have my top flavors are my pineapple mint and my blueberry chai, but I usually lean towards my turmeric ginger just because turmeric is one of the world's most powerful antioxidants. When I'm cramping, when I've been on my bike all day, I love having my turmeric ginger. Mm-hmm. Um, aside from that, I also have a fireballer. Almost tastes like fireballer, but it's not quite. It's the healthy version of fireball. So cayenne cloves <laughs> and cinnamon. And then I have a cranberry clove and an apple cider as well. Oh, yes. Yeah. Do you have to do a lot of research about what flavors and spices benefit you? Like which ones benefit your gut or cramps or how does that work? Um, Yeah, I do a little bit of research, but I just do know a lot of it too from being in the natural foods industry. Like I said, uh, I used to work at Whole Foods and right now I'm a natural food sales rep. So I'm just very much inside the natural foods industries as well. So. So what are some of the challenges you faced as you've sort of gone about creating Life's a Booch? It is a small business, and, and what is it like to operate that in Fort Collins? Oh, man, so many challenges between um, ordering the wrong size label twice, um, <laughs> um, getting your licenses, not having anyone really give you a specific answer or giving you a specific direction, and sort of, I feel just like finding out the answers on your own have been the biggest challenge, but the Fort Collins community, I feel like this is the best community to start a small business. It's very, very supportive. Um, So yeah, with the challenges, there's been a lot of happiness and success as well, too. Yeah, that's great. With kombucha kind of growing in popularity over 2019, how would you describe for our listeners what makes your kombucha special? The flavor profile, definitely. And the fact that I ferment in two-gallon glass jars, whereas in other companies, once you get bigger, you sort of go into more bigger batch, more commercial brewing. I will never break my two-gallon brew method. Um, just like I said, it keeps the authenticity um, of the kombucha, and it's just more natural. And so that is really what differentiates me from anyone else. That's awesome. Yeah. 
And where are you located in Fort Collins? I am located at Beavers Market, Mountain Avenue, sorry, Mountain Avenue Market, which everyone knows as the Fort Collins Food Co-op, Revolution Market, Explorado Market. If you guys are ever in Boulder, I'm at Lolita's Market. And then I'm also now available at the Loco Artisan Coffee Shop in Loveland. And I will soon be at Lucky's Market, which opens on March 6th. March 6th, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? No, um, I will also be at the Winter Farmer's market this next Saturday, February 22nd, and I will be there every other Saturday until the end of May, uh, sorry, March. So come on down and sample some kombucha. That'd be awesome. That's awesome. Well, you heard it here, listeners. If you have a craving to try this new kombucha trend, Rachel is the woman to go to, and she has locations all over Fort Collins. Thank you again so much, Rachel. We really appreciate you being here today. Thank you, guys. Of course, we have music coming up next, and then stay tuned because we've got national news and a Valentine's Day survey of our very own own CSU students just like you. We'll be right back after the break. You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. And welcome back to the Rocky Mountain Review. Woo-woo! I'm J.D. Layton, one of two news directors here at 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. I decided to change it up every... What? Wow. <laughs> wow. Wow. You did. I, I don't know. I feel like I'm a creature of habit and... Uh, yeah, that and was that was, was that was funny to different. watch. That was definitely different. So those other alien voices you hear drifting in the distance <laughs> are the other news director, the co-hostist with the mostest, Emily Moshek, as well as our lovely, lovely reporter, Katie Otter, and the silent one, our other lovely, lovely reporter, Ren Wattsworth. <laughs> oh my goodness! It's a veritable gaggle here at the Rocky Mountain Review. Did you know they call a group of pugs a grumble? Can we be a grumble of news people? Um, they call a group of otters a raft. A raft? Oh, wow. Can we be a raft? Is that because otters, like, connect to each other? Have uh-huh. you seen them do that? Uh-huh. Like, they hold on to each other. That's right. I don't know if that's the reason or not, but <laughs> I don't know. That's they cool. are called a raft. I didn't, why is there a name for a group of pugs? Do they have one for, like, every breed of dog? I don't know, but I know what a group of pugs is called, and it's a grumble. So. All right. Well, we got a, got a good grumble going here. <laughs> <laughs> so what do oh, we have man. coming on up next? Up next is a music segment by our very own music director, Monty Daniel, on a band called Cherry Glaze. Absolutely. Woo. And it's on their a new album, but I'll let Monty do the talking for this one. Only here on 90.5 KCSU for Collins. Cherry Glazer is an American rock band from Los Angeles, California, who formed in 2013. The current lineup consists of guitarist and lead vocalist Clementine Creevy, bassist Devin O'Brien, and drummer Tabor Allen. In an interview with Stereo Gum, Creevy acknowledges her struggle with burgeoning adulthood on her newest album, Stuffed and Ready. She says, quote, The record is an expression of a well of feelings that I have. My most visceral feelings, really. I wanted to get raw with myself and figure out how I am feeling, really. I didn't realize until after I finished the album that I've been struggling with growing up. I thought I wasn't, but then I realized that I do. Stuffed and Ready describes the anxiety of not living one's best life, always contemplating what is the best choice for living. My personal favorite song off the album is Ohio. This is the first song off the album, and it begins with Clementine's powerful guitar riffs and equally powerful vocals. 
The song moves back and forth between calm, subdued moments and moves quickly into emotional, grungy guitar solos. Creevy is both the lead vocalist and lead guitarist, which I find very impressive, seeing as though those are the two most prominent and robust parts of the record. Although there seems to be no exact explanation as to what the song is about, the way I interpreted it was how Creevy holds a large amount of self-doubt and confidence within herself, and she is merely trying to figure out how to walk the line between the two. Self-Explained is a song about introvertedness and feelings surrounding anxiety. Creevy has previously been known for outspokenly writing songs about sexism and inequalities, but this album takes a whole new route, focusing on Creevy's fears of being judged for how much time she actually spends by herself. She doesn't want people to laugh at her for what she does in her free time. I don't get close to the song Isolated discusses the feeling of being completely cut off from society. Isolation and self-explained feel like the same idea explored in different facets. This song is a lot heavier sounding than self-explained, with extended guitar riffs similar to the song Ohio. Isolated feels more emotional and raw overall. The song feels like being stuck in a constant cycle of self-doubt and not knowing how to escape. In an interview with Billboard, Creevy said, quote, I think I've dealt with feelings of loneliness my whole life. While I was making this album, I felt like a newfound solitude when I'm actually alone. So This album is much darker than their previous works, and I think is a self-needed exploration for Creevy. She said to Billboard, quote, I think the lyrics on this record are more vulnerable, introspective, self-reflective, and a little bit more straightforward about how I'm feeling and why it is the way I'm feeling. Like lots of other albums that have been released recently, this album has a strong focus on mental health and exemplifying the fact that it's okay to speak up about what is affecting you. For the Rocky Mountain Review, I'm Monty Daniel. And welcome back to the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm trying I'm still trying to change it up. I don't feel like I'm doing a very good justice. You're doing something. <laughs> y'all y'all are getting a chuckle out of this. She's catching me way off guard. Like right as we go on air. I know. I don't know. Dear listener, please call or text in and let me know. If I'm doing it justice, is the new intro worthwhile? 
I'm J.D. Layton. I'm also joined in studio by the disembodied voices of Emily Moshak and Katie Otter. Unless, of course, you look in at the live stream and then you'll see that we do really have bodies. Hello, live stream people. If anyone's there. (laughs) If if anybody's watching. If anyone's out there. It's like that Pink Floyd song. Hello, hello, hello. Right, right, right. So, (laughs) oh man, what do you think of Monty's music segment? I actually quite liked it. It was a nice coming of age album. It was good. Yeah, it was catchy. I I do want to admit we earlier called the band Cherry Glaze, and they're called Cherry Glazer. And I'm certainly looking forward to checking out a little more about them. Indeed, indeed. But in the meantime, Katie has a national newscast for us. Hey, here's your national news. I'm Katie Otter. The House of Representatives voted 248 to 177 to end American military assistance for Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen, reports the New York Times. The war in Yemen has been going on for four years, has caused thousands of civilian deaths as well as a famine. This vote may prompt President Trump to issue his first veto of his presidency. In recent days and weeks, the Republican Party has voiced their dissent with President Trump's decisions with foreign policy issues, including his plan to withdraw troops from Syria and Afghanistan, as well as his threats to pull the United States out of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. With this vote, the House is using the 1973 War Powers Act, which gives Congress the power uh, to compel the removal of troops without a formal declaration of war. Since its creation in the wake of the Vietnam War, the War Powers Act is rarely exercised by Congress. Over the weekend, the White House issued a statement stating, quote, the premise of the joint resolution is flawed. Since 2005, the United, er, I'm sorry, since 2015, the United States has provided limited support to member countries of the Saudi-led coalition, including intelligence sharing, logistics, support, and until recently, aerial refueling to assist in the defense of the United States allies and partners, end quote. Joaquin El Chapo Guzman has been convicted earlier this week of all 10 federal accounts against him, which included running an industrial-scale drug smuggling operation. The ruling comes after a three-month-long trial that took place in Brooklyn, New York, and was uh, filled with shocking stories about murders, political payoffs, smuggling drugs in various places, as well as an escape from the authorities through a tunnel, reports Tom Hayes of the Associated Press. The jury spent six days powering through and and analyzing a, quote, avalanche of evidence. The evidence showed how Chapo and the Sinaloa cartel smuggled drugs into the United States, including tons of cocaine, heroin, meth, and marijuana. Many of these drugs entered the U.S. in the undercarriage of passenger vehicles and packed in rail cars through legitimate points of entry at the border. It is likely that Chapo will be serving his sentence in the United States in a maximum security prison in an effort to make sure he does not escape, as he has done so in the past. It is unlikely that Chapo's conviction will have any major effect on the operations of the Sinaloa cartel, which is the world's largest drug trafficking organization, reports Ray Sanchez of CNN. Defense lawyers argued at the trial that Ismael Zambada, an associate of Chapo, bribed the Mexican government to frame El Chapo. In addition to the Sinaloa cartel prospering despite Chapo's conviction, they also have an emerging rival in the Jalisco New Generation cartel. Former 
Chicago police officer Jason Van Dyke, who was convicted of murder after fatally fatally shooting 17-year-old Laquan McDonald 16 times in 2014, was transferred to a Connecticut prison where he was beaten in his cell, reports the Chicago Tribune. Lawyers for Van Dyke say that after he was transferred to Connecticut and booked into general population, that he was attacked by several people in his cell. After the attack, he was moved into a segregated unit for his safety. Last month, Van Dyke was sentenced to serve 81 months in prison after being convicted of second-degree murder and 16 counts of aggravated battery. It is currently unclear why he was transferred out of Illinois to Connecticut. While in an Illinois prison, Van Dyke was held in isolation, and his lawyers are claiming that they were unaware of any security issues that would prompt the out-of-state transfer. Currently, the Federal Bureau of Prisons lists Van Dyke as being held at the Danbury Federal Correction Institution, which is a low-to-minimum security prison. Amazon has made the decision to abandon their plans to build a headquarters in New York City, reports Vice News. They were planning uh, to build a second headquarters in the borough of Queens, And with a statement issued by Amazon, quote, after much thought and deliberation, we've decided not to move forward with our plans to build a headquarters for Amazon in Long Island City, Queens. For Amazon, the commitment to build a new headquarters requires positive collaborative collaborative relationships with state and local elected officials who will be supportive over the long term. They also stated that they will not, quote, intend to reopen the HQ2 search at this time. We will proceed to, as planned, in Northern Virginia and Nashville, and we will continue to hire and grow across our 17 corporate offices and tech hubs in the U.S. and Canada, end quote. The mayor and governor of New York uh, incentivized Amazon to come to New York with tax breaks, And both men were receiving uh, much backlash over what is being called a secretive deal between the city and the company. Democratic House Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez also condemned the company's decision to move to Long Island. For 90.5 KCSU, I'm Katie Otter. It blows my mind that Amazon pulled out of that deal because I remember it being such a big deal. Like, Denver was in the running for a while, and people were like, oh, yeah, let's bring Amazon to Denver. That'd be right. so sweet. But uh, New York had, had definitely have some pushback against it, though. Rent's already high enough, and now you're just going to flood it with people who have money, mm-hmm. and then nobody will be able to get buildings. And now that they've backed out, people are mad that they've backed out. Right. It They kind of, like, I don't know, a bait and switch with the city, the whole city. Um and I know a lot of people were protesting it, and then, I don't know, I think maybe this, all this stuff with Jeff Bezos going on right now, it's just a lot, and people are upset that, like I mentioned, um, how all of this was kind of done behind closed doors, and that they were offering, like, huge tax breaks. Right. Um, it just, I don't know. It seems shady. It does. But, you know, today's not about... everybody. <laughs> no, you t- cannot. Today's not about being shady. Today's all about loving. <laughs> And Emily, I believe you've got us something. I do. I did a piece with CTV, which is our student media television station, with my co-host Allie Peters. And we hit the plaza to find out people's Valentine's Day date experiences of the past. And uh, definitely keep that dial locked because we'll be sharing ours as well. Oh, yeah. Only here on the Rocky Mountain Review. 
Happy Valentine's Day, Rams. I'm Emily. And I'm Allie. And we're here on the plaza trying to find out the best and worst date experiences of our fellow Rams. And could you tell me about your best and or worst date experience in the past? My best day experience uh, would definitely be concerts, probably. Probably going to Sonic Bloom with my girlfriend over last summer. Do you have a worst date experience? I made a date to go hiking with this girl, and then I went and picked up all my friends and totally forgot to pick her up and went hiking and totally forgot about it until like halfway through the hike. The worst one was we had these guys, me and my friend, that came to our apartment complex. It wasn't really a date because we went to like Fazoli's, but um, they had friends that ended up stealing her brother's car. While we were on the date, and yeah, we all almost like got arrested. So I went to this girl to dinner one time. I thought it was going great. And then she just starts picking her nose. And during dinner, I was like, okay, this is gross or whatever. And I didn't talk to her after that. Definitely my worst date experiences are always when the guy can't pick out the food for like 15 minutes and it makes me angry at them and it kind of ruins the whole date. And then probably my best experience, probably Valentine's Day when I went to New York City with my ex-boyfriend, so that was fun. I had a blind date one time and I showed up and we were wearing like the exact same outfit. Both had these tight black pants on and tight leather black jackets. Did it work out? Um, no, no, I never went on a date with her again. Do you have any plans? Not at the moment. Hopefully someone plans something for me. We'll see when the day comes. I know, right? My boyfriend hasn't said anything yet, so I'm hoping yeah. he's got a surprise up his sleeve. Yeah. <laughs> Either way, happy Valentine's Day, Rams. And welcome back to the Rugged Mountain Review. I am your host, J.D. Leighton. I'm joined in the studio by my co-host... Emily Moshak. As well as our reporter. Katie Otter. And Zay. Yep. <laughs> Who is our programming director. That's true. Right, he has here. a title, but I just wanted to see if he'd say his own title. Chef Would Zay he? is my real title, actually. There we go. Chef Zay. Chef Zay. So who wants, to, uh, who wants to take us off with their worst date? Just to, just to start it. I can kick it off. Alrighty. Uh, so uh, it was back in high school. I was a freshman back in the days. And, you know, suavecito myself, I was inviting a, a junior woman to go out, out on a date with me. But turns out that I picked out a movie that was rated R. And, you know, being a little freshman as myself, you know, 14, uh, I couldn't get in. So then I had to call my dad to come to the movie theater and then ruin pretty much the whole vibe and buy my ticket. So what, how did the, how did, did you ever talk to this girl again? Never talked to her again. I don't, uh, yeah, that was pretty well, much it. Well, at least you got her to agree to go to a movie with you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, small wins, I guess. Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> Anyone else want to uh, top that one? I, I'm really excited to hear JD's. I'm not going to pressure him to go right now. I'm just, I think mm. I want JD's to be last. Okay. But, okay. But I have one. I went out with this guy my junior year of high school, and we went on a date to see the movie Frozen. <laughs> and it was a fine date. Like, the first date was fine. I wasn't super into him, but I was like, okay, you know, like, it wasn't a bad date. Okay. And then the next day at school, I still didn't have a car at this point because I was, like, just turned 16. Mm. And he was like, hey, can I give you a ride home? And I was like, okay. And so I get in the car, and he puts in the Frozen soundtrack. <laughs> and then he begins to sing Love is an Open Door, which, if you're not familiar, is a duet between... <laughs> 
<laughs> like the girl, the princess, and the prince. Did he expect you to? Yes, yes, he did. And it wasn't. The thing is, it wasn't just like joke singing. Like love is an open door. Like he was straight up like love is an open door. And oh then he'd look goodness. at me, and I was like. Oh, wow. And yeah, we also never went out again. I broke up with him over text, which I feel bad about. But I'm like, yeah, we only went on a date. So I was kind of like, yeah, I'm not trying to go on a second date. See, I feel like that's acceptable at that point. (laughs) Right. I'm like, it's pretty early. So I just kind of. So you saw Frozen in theaters is what you're saying? Yeah. And then got serenaded. (laughs) So uh, how long That sounds like a a relatively icy relationship. Oh, (laughs) Oh, how how long was the car ride? How long did you have to endure this for? 15 minutes. That's a little bit long. It was a little long. It was long enough for it to get very awkward. I'm sure you were very excited to. uh... Oh, wait, I got a question. Did you sing? back did you, no, did you do it i just kind of giggled i was like oh funny yeah, like, <laughs> it's awkward. so awkward yeah it's really awkward and he is uh, he's a nice guy but he's still like that he's very emotional and sings a lot, <laughs> 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 yeah. so i'm sure he'll find a singing lady someday oh, that's yeah. good um <laughs> i i don't have any hilarious type stories like this but was it like a year or two ago and this guy comes to pick me up and he had nothing planned at all oh. like everything was like where do you want to go what should we do next oh that's that just so annoying generally it, sounds like a bad day it was just really annoying and boring and awkward and yeah. we never really had much to talk about so i kind of just sat there and drank beer instead <laughs> and it ended up being fine a super nice guy like i still see him around but yeah that went nowhere quick <laughs> yeah yeah that's always i know that's how i know i'm like if i have trouble thinking of something to say already on the first date i'm like this mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. not the connection That's just I'm how looking you for. how you know it's not the rainbow connection <laughs> and uh dear listener if you wanted to tell us your worst date we want to hear it oh do we want to hear it you can always call or text in at 970-491-5278 is it it's your turn it's, it's your turn we're we, anticipating we this story oh, man. i feel like y'all have set it up as as too 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 Good. worthwhile that's okay well, so the worst date now. i ever went on I was I was very interested in this very hipster girl in high school. She loved slam poetry. Mm. I'm not a slam poetry type of guy. Not not my thing, but I was like, you know, we'll go. So first date, she's like, oh, there's this place that's super awesome. Let's go. Okay. Go to this slam poetry place. First off, it's in the basement of what looks like an abandoned warehouse. You open the doors, and there's a bouncer, and it's $60 to get into this place. And, of course... You know, I'm trying to be the, the, the gentleman here, and I pay. So that's $120 for two of us to get into the slam poetry venue. You open the curtain, and it's like being assaulted by a wall of cigarette smoke. Everybody oh. in there is chain-smoking. Oh. There are what look like a series of the grossest couches ever set up around mm. a small stage, and then oh. there is a spot in the corner where you can buy... It, like a $30 cup of Folgers coffee. And it's more like a soup bowl. It doesn't really have a handle. It's just a really big bowl full of coffee. It's like an entire pot in one go. And people are just buying this coffee, like, left and right. My first thought is, I didn't bring enough money. I'm already broke. And she is in love with all of this. And I apparently missed the memo where you're supposed to wear your striped black shirt and your beret. Because <laughs> everybody had that. Except for me. I'm, like, in a red flannel shirt. So I stick out oh, no. pretty bad. <laughs> At this point, you know, there's kind of a jazz band playing. And I'm like, ah, it's not that bad. This is pretty yeah. cool. You know, you get the, the soothing tunes. Being optimistic. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, ah, all right, this is kind of weird. But, you know, it's not, I can, I can salvage this situation. It's not awful yet. 
jazz band stops, except for the saxophone stays up, and you hear this, and the lights go dark, and this dude steps up on stage, and they're like, oh, Pierre's here, oh, Pierre, Pierre, please do your poetry, Pierre, and the saxophone's, and he goes, couch, potato, and the lights come on, like, okay, and then, he goes, couch, potato, couch, potato, and he does this for like an hour. Oh, no. All he does no. is says couch potato, and the saxophone That's is getting like more and more into it, and the people there are in love with it. Oh he had like gosh. a, a oh, fan group. Pierre, <laughs> he had like a thin pencil mustache. I doubt his name was actually Pierre. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was just so weird. And the girl I was with, she was absolutely enthralled. She was like, I can't believe his words. They are moving me <laughs> on a level that I will never reach again. And I just, just like, wow. I, I clearly, you can't like, live up to Pierre. <laughs> I clearly missed a level. Pierre, like, left the venue, and there were, like, he had, like, a posse of people who followed him. And I was just like, what? Never went on another date with that girl. Wow. <laughs> were people snapping? Was it? Like the snap, the snaps. Like, ooh, no potato. snaps. Everybody was, like, dead silent. And then he'd say couch potato, and you'd hear, oh, oh. Oh, wow. <laughs> Wow. Honestly, when you started telling this story, I, I was picturing the scene from um, 22 Jump Street. <laughs> and I, yes. thought, I thought it was going to be one He's of like, those Cynthia, rooms. you're Cynthia. <laughs> and I thought it was going to be like, dad. <laughs> Jesus, dad, for our Cynthia's. And I thought you were going to be like, yeah, I thought I was going to impress this girl and got up on stage. I know. No, 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 no. Yeah. I didn't even, that was it. That was what I paid $60 to go oh. see. Wow. Wow. Well, was it $60 so or $120? It was $60 for me, and it was $120 for the two of us. Oh, my no. gosh. And, of course, I had to get us coffee, too, and the coffee's 30 bucks. So it's what? like, I spent almost, she like, She scammed you. You got hustled. You got swindled, my friend. She wanted what? to go on a second date. I did oh. not. Yeah, because she wanted more coffee and couch potatoes. <laughs> I was like, I am not Hashtag sophisticated coffee enough. couch potatoes. You can always hit up the uh, KCSU Twitter for that. Yeah, we have it now. So. Actually, kind of. Kind of. We're in the process, but we will be gaining control sooner rather than later. Yes. <laughs> but I uh, I think it's that time of the show where we really gather together and we learn of the things that are to come. And by the things that are to come, I mean the weather. Yeah. You already know what Thursday was like. You can go outside and look up and be like, mm-hmm, this is weather time. But Friday, mm it's going to be a nice day. High of 52, low of 24, partially nice. cloudy. Saturday, mm, not looking as nice. It's going to be a high of 41, but it's still pretty good. It's going to be partially cloudy with a low of 18 degrees as well as Sunday. Oof, it's going to be chilly. 34 degrees. We're dipping right back into that cold. So prep yourselves for what's coming up next. Monday, 25 degrees. Oh. But Tuesday, you got to tune in then. And on that note, dear listener... I would like to personally invite you to be my Valentine, my sweet, sweet love, the person who I love serenading uh, through this new show. Uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> no one has any response to this. Well, anyway, thank you to Linda Goldman for her lovely interview about the Green Book, as well as Rachel Walker for telling us about her kombucha shop. We also want to thank our music director, Monty Daniel, for her lovely, lovely music segment. And I want to thank my CTV co-host, Ellie Peters, for helping me with our Valentine's Day I want to thank our reporters. Oh, I cut you off. That's okay. I want to wow. thank our reporters, Kitty Honor, as well as Ren Wadsworth. 
And I want to thank you, Emily. I want to thank you, J.D. Wow. It's just a thanking circle. Thanks, really Zay. Thank you. Thank you, yeah, and thank you, Zay, <laughs> for joining here. us and sharing with us your worst date. That was definitely chuckle-inducing. Anytime. Let's <laughs> so keep that dialogue. We'll be taking a long break before we come back on Tuesday at 4 o'clock. And also, in case you missed this episode, guess what, dear listener? It's coming back at 11 p.m. at night. And it's always living online at uh, kccufm.com. And isn't there a show coming up after this? Oh, there is oh, a yeah. show coming Who, up. Whose show is it? I can't remember for the life of me. It has... DJ M's. DJ M's. Oh, yeah. Name, oh, I heard yeah. all right. It's my show. Oh, no way. It's my oh, show. You, oh, Whoa. Yeah. 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 I stopped being newsy and I started getting groovy. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh. But yeah, I'm going to be playing a lot of Valentine's Day classic rock love songs. Okay. In about 15 minutes. There you go. So this one's trying to set the moon. Oh, yeah. So definitely keep that dialogue. But in the meantime, Gay. Yes. Oh. Heck yeah. I, uh, you know, I almost started, but I didn't want to steal his thunder. Man, I would have embarrassed myself, so. That's okay. <laughs> anyway, thank you all for listening to the show. Keep that dial locked for me when I come on again in a little bit. Anyway, in the meantime, here's Easy Riding by The Stripes on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. <laughs>